Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. This episode features Tom Tugendhat, the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Now, he's been on the show before, but never done one of the live shows. So I was so excited to interview Tom in front of an audience because as well as being very thoughtful and, my God, a man of such gravity. I mean, he looks younger than he is. He's in his 40s, but he has such a heart and soul about him and clearly becomes moved when he's talking about things that he cares about, which is a lot of things. And as a man who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, as a man who chairs the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, a man who is absolutely vigilant about the effects of Russia and the influence of Russia in our politics, this is a time that is clearly very close to the surface to him, but he articulates his politics in a particular way. So many people afterwards talking to me about it. Um, but before we come on to that, um, future guests have been announced in two weeks' time. Well, less than two weeks. A week on Monday, James Cleverly is back on the show. I've not had James on for years. He is a barrel of laughs. He's brilliant. He also served in the armed forces. He's now a foreign office minister, so a fantastic time to be talking to him about everything that's going on. Uh, and future guests include Rosie Duffield, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Rosanna Allen-Khan, Lisa Nandy, David Davis, and Gary Neville. And as well, I'm on tour. And thank you to all of you who came to see me on uh, you know, any of the recent tour dates. The dates in the Northeast were fantastic. And uh, in the next few days, I'm playing Maidstone, Norwich, Cambridge, two nights in Edinburgh, uh, one night in Glasgow, Leicester, Northampton, Bath, Brighton. There are last few tickets for a lot of those. They've almost sold out. Um, I think both Brighton dates have sold out now, and I think both Edinburgh dates have. Um, but if you check with the uh, venue, they'll get some returns. And I'm adding a date in Leeds. But um, go to mattford.com for all the live dates there. And I'm doing the Bloomsbury Theatre in London on Saturday, the 23rd of April, um, which will be fantastic. It's always an absolute treat playing there. So Saturday, the 23rd of April at the Bloomsbury Theatre. And of course, the political party exists at the Duchess Theatre, um, which is where tonight's, well, say tonight, this episode, it could be the night when you're listening to this, how apt, uh, was recorded. Um, Tommy's really good fun and he's very, very, I mean, it's very, I think, rare that you meet a politician who is relatively young, um, who possesses the gravitas, the seriousness, but also um, a level of freedom. You know, we talk about the modern era and being a politician in the modern era, modern era with social media and all those sorts of things. And I don't think he feels that as too much of a pressure as you might presume. So he has a great, he's actually very free of the whole thing. He has a he's very philosophical about, um, you know, his political um, career if he doesn't become leader of the Conservative Party. And we talk about that. He's obviously said um, publicly that he would stand if he could get the support in the next Tory leadership election. And you can see why even his proposed candidacy really excites people because he is a real contrast um, with the current prime minister. And I think certainly from the messages that I get, there are a lot of conservatives who really wish the conservative party was um, more in Tom's image uh, than perhaps the, the, the recent image than it's been in. So he has um, exceptional political judgment 
and uh, just a very likable and funny man, but also um, takes the serious stuff very seriously. And when you think about communications and you think about the UK government's messaging on taking refugees from Ukraine, I think he's going to say things here that you haven't heard before. And that begs the question, why are the people aren't saying it? And how good uh, a communicate, you know, how good a communicator is the prime minister if they don't understand that things can be um, put in a different way that is more helpful. Um, I realise I'm being quite cryptic, but I think when we get to that bit, you'll kind of understand what I mean. Um, but this is an absolute treat with potentially uh, future prime minister Tom Tudor. Did anyone come to the Neil Kinnock night? Yeah. No. Have you stopped crying yet? No. It's one of the most emotional experiences of my life, giving away that much whiskey. But uh, <laughs> my God, what a night that was. We have a special guest for you tonight as well. And of course, the news, my word, the news. Boris Johnson is, uh, has addressed the Tory Spring Conference this week, where he likened the plight of the Ukrainian people to the British voting for Brexit. I mean, let's just deal with this at the start. That is completely insensitive. I mean, you cannot make a comparison between those two things at all. One is a vulnerable country being battered by Russia's lust for power, and the other is Ukraine. <laughs> Too early for Ukraine gags? Yes, comes the awkward, silent <laughs> response from people with a conscience who don't spend their whole life writing jokes about stuff. So, uh, I mean, this is what's amazing about Boris Johnson. Just when you think, actually, like some sort of buttered pig, he's managed to <laughs> wriggle out of the shit and break free. You go, actually, he's having quite a good week here. And he's talking about something, oh, the moment he starts talking about Ukraine, you go, well, look, he's the Prime Minister, he's got to get on with this. And then he makes some terrible comment, and you think, he should just now, for the sake of everyone, start every speech by saying, well, I, I won't start by uh, addressing a very important issue. I, I know that now that the news has moved on, that people may well have forgotten some of the things I've done and, and may well be of a disposition where they start to believe I may actually possess some skills of leadership. But, but it is important at the start to remind you all, I really am a, a, an appalling bastard. And I, will, <laughs> I will, And I will let you down. And even if you're thinking, no, 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 this is a joke, no, 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 trust me, I am a despicable cunt. <laughs> I really am. So. It's a buttered pig, what Cameron would have wanted, mate. Fucking hell, Jesus Christ. That's fucking great. You're looking for some writing work. I do you every fortnight. Thank you very much for coming. Any work. I repeat, any work. <laughs> I think David Cameron is as well, actually. He's volunteering at a food bank now, David Cameron. Fuck. It's like Bin Laden doing a collection for the 9-11 families. That <laughs> well, the reason they're there, David, you cheeky bastard. You're volunteering at a food bank in Chipping Norton for two, two years. I mean, that must be the poshest food bank in Britain. <laughs> the only food bank with a game counter. <laughs> God, but yes, as well as volunteering at this food bank company, he's, he's driven a juggernaut. I mean, he shouldn't laugh, he's doing a good thing. He's driven a juggernaut out to Poland to give all this food to Ukrainian refugees. You think, the, the sight of, I don't know if you've seen the picture, he's tweeted a picture of him in his juggernaut cabin about to drive across Europe. You think, I would love Cameron to get into the kind of CB radio <laughs> culture of the road. Niner, niner, receive, receive. Austerity badger here. Austerity badger. <laughs> niner, niner, all clear on the 59. Yeah, no, no. No, I love the open road. No, I, I really do. No, no, I love it. I've got my Top Gear driving anthems. I've got my Ginster's peppered steak slice. And I've got an empty bottle for liquids and a carrier bag for solids. Yeah, it's... <laughs> 
What's terrible about Boris Johnson saying these appalling things is the cycle of these things now is Boris Johnson says something appalling, his cabinet go on telly to defend it, and only when at least five of them have humiliated themselves, he goes, actually, I am sorry for saying that. <laughs> it's fucking amazing. Rishi's seen that going, no, 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 he did not make a direct equivalence at all. <laughs> like, there is literally nothing he could say that Sajid Javid or Jacob Rees-Mogg wouldn't go out and say, no, 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 when, when the Prime Minister likened the famine in East Africa to running out of Fulton's pate, <laughs> well, look, I, uh, well, they're very different, but they are both problems. And I, uh, anyone who's had a Fulton's hamper will tell you disposing of the wicker basket actually is a big job. <laughs> a few laughs of recognition giving away the Tories in the room there. But, uh, yeah, of course, the Tories and Russia, this is the big story, isn't it? It's the, the Russian money are washing the Tory bar. And just the list of endless scandals of Boris Johnson specifically and his relationship with these Russian donors. Every time there's a scandal, you open it up and there's another scandal inside and then another one inside that. If only there was a Russian analogy that would work for, <laughs> for this sort of story. Obviously, when we're dealing with Ukraine, we should remember the real victims in all this. Uh, Chelsea fans, who uh, are really suffering at the moment. Really suffering Chelsea fans. For those of you not into football, I'll just give you a quick uh, briefing on morality in football and where the different clubs lie. So there are some nice clubs in football, there's some not so nice clubs. If there was a league table of morality, nice clubs like Nottingham Forest would be at the top. It'd be nice to be at the top of some league, so we'd be at the top of that. Towards the bottom, you basically have Millwall, the provisional IRA, ISIS, and then Chelsea. And it's, you know, people talk about sport washing. I saw Frank Lampard got interviewed about this. They're like, what was your relationship with Roman about? Because, you know, I'm not here to talk about politics, uh, but, you know, on the football side, it was very good. You're like, that's what sport washing is, mate. That's the whole point, is you get brought in to go, the politics is none of my business, but he's a really lovely guy. John Terry tweeted a picture of him and Roman Abramovich. So you could pick any dispute in global history, and I bet you John Terry would pick the wrong side every time. <laughs> No, I, look, I just speak as a fine. Look, Adolf was really good for the academy, do you know what I mean? No. He backed me in every transfer window. That's all I can say for the geezer, you know what I mean? Surprised he hasn't turned up in Ukraine with his full kit, John Terry, on the back of a tank. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very, very special guest tonight. He's been on the podcast before, but never done one of the live shows. He's a politician giving a lot of people a lot of hope, particularly in the Conservative Party, because he's the sort of person many people wish was leading not just the party, but the country. He is a war hero. He is a star of parliamentary viral videos. He's a very funny man, a very thoughtful man, and looks a lot younger than he is. Please give it up for... <laughs> ideal. Well, sounds like the ideal politician. Please give a huge welcome to Tom Tugendhat. <laughs> Tom, welcome to the show. Very nice to be here. In I love this. You can't see anybody. It's great. It's because there's no one here. It's much less terrible. <laughs> Terrible turnout, but uh, never mind. Well, Tom, it's a pleasure to actually meet you face to face. We've spoken a few times over Zoom. Well, it's good to see you. You look a lot better without the Haribos. <laughs> Tom, we should deal with this at the start. Tom, um, last time he was on the show, to thank him, I sent him some Haribos because he's into Haribos. I sent him a big box of Haribos. A couple of dozen packs, yeah. Yeah. Have you about what? Two days, three days. <laughs> but what is it about Haribos then? Because other people would say a bottle of champagne or some whiskey, please. Oh no, Haribos are easily much better than all of that. No, Haribos are absolutely essential for, you know, normal operational life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not, am I allowed to advertise cigarettes? Oh yeah. Oh right, okay. So it, I'm a Blairite, mate. Advertise <laughs> anything. 
So, you know, on ops for, for years, you know, you, 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 you end up getting paid. You're not paying for anything while you're out there. So you spend all your, well, all your, I mean, there's only so much money you can spend on cigarettes and Haribos. But trust me, I tried. I, I really, <laughs> I went for it. And, um, and, and I've uh, sadly had to stop with the cigarettes. But the Haribos, you know, what can I say? They are very good for your health. I mean, up to a point. It would have been a very different Oasis single, Cigarettes and Haribos. <laughs> I just think it would have, you know, it would appeal to the enemy. <laughs> So is there a particular type of Arab? Are you a Tangfastics guy? A Tangfastics. No, no, there's no other kind. <laughs> and what is it about Tangfastics that, that a, a good army man needs? Well, isn't it obvious? <laughs> well, just for those of us that aren't finding it that obvious. Oh, I'm surprised. Sorry. I mean, it's, it's, it's clearly the combination of the, uh, of the basic food groups. You know, it's got, it's got mush, it's got goo, and it's got sugar. <laughs> I mean, is it, I mean, you're basically eating children's food while serving you. Yeah, I'm not eating the child, mate. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but it is, you know, people would look at people like you and Johnny Mercer strapping army men, impressive physical specimens with the minds to go with it. Can I just say, this Rishi Sunak sort of loving thing is getting a little bit sort of... <laughs> <laughs> well, he's good looking, isn't he, Rishi? He is. And uh, have you told him? Well, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> not yet, but now you are. <laughs> The knife is young. <laughs> but people might expect you to be eating, like, I don't know, NASA rations or something oh, like they're that. disgusting. Yeah, but they don't... It's really hard to imagine you in Iraq and Afghanistan basically eating... having a tuck shop. Well, the Nafis, you know, it's got to sell something, hasn't it? Um, what is the Nafi? For those of us that oh, are... Oh, sorry, the Navy, Army, Air Force, it's the shop that you get on bases, and it's normally... Uh, you know, they normally sell cigarettes and... Uh, sweets and the chocolate's normally melted, so I wouldn't touch that. And the uh, and the sweets, well, you know, what do you want? <laughs> because to those of us who haven't served in Iraq and Afghanistan, my main thought would be, it's well, not yet. <laughs> if I end up getting drafted, we have lost that war. Well, we lost already. <laughs> There's something very sweet about strong, tough men just enjoying a fizzy little sweet. <laughs> well, you know. That's the army for you. I mean, it's probably... It's a new modern army. Very touchy-feely. <laughs> so, you served in Iraq and Afghanistan in the Territorial Army. Um, you know, people like me who haven't served often might say, oh, well, that's not the real army, you know. No wonder you eat in Haribos. That's you know. a fair point. Sort of nowhere near the front line. Basically, you and Mark Francois gorging yourself on Astro belts. Can I just say, in a straight competition, I think my money's on him. <laughs> what, what about in a fight to the death? Who would win out of the two of you? Well, what's the prize? Well, life. Not Haribos. I think if it was life, I'm in with a chance. If it's Haribos, I'm fucked. <laughs> <laughs> So what about, so James cleverly served, yep. Dan Jarvis, yep. you, Johnny Mercer. Who's the hardest out of all you guys? Uh, I can tell you that easily, actually. It's, uh, it's Dan. Uh, I served alongside Dan in, um, when he was, um, he was commanding a company of paras down in um, Gamsir. And he, he writes in his book um, that I turned up and he thought I was there to check up on him. And he you know, wasn't sure how it was going to go. And when I first saw him afterwards, I said... Were you really there to check on me? He said, yeah, yeah, I was actually. And if you were shit, you were going to get fired. <laughs> and, he, and he was really good. He was really, really good. And he led various operations around um, Helmand, including 
all the way down to the south, and we got into a few fights together. I mean, against other people, not between ourselves. Um, and he was, no, he was really impressive. I mean, seriously impressive. He's a very, very thoughtful, very considerate, very, um, very violent man. <laughs> because he's, I mean, he's obviously, he's a very softly spoken guy. Hard to imagine him in combat. Not really, no. I mean, he really can bring death to the Queen's enemies. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Does that include Jeremy Corbyn? <laughs> you know my views. <laughs> I suspect they're Dan's too, actually. But I guess you could as well. I guess you could bring death to the Queen's enemies if, if required. Well, no, I was too busy eating Haribo. <laughs> <laughs> because there was a period of time where he was touted, today's touted as a future Labour leader. You could become a Tory leader. Wouldn't this be an, ama an amazing story that two men who served side by side would then end up serving their countries. It's not that... You know, you as leader of the opposition, he as Prime Minister. I mean, it's not that unusual. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, that wouldn't be such a bad outcome. <laughs> Dan is a very, very good man. Wrong on almost everything, but a very, very good man. <laughs> it wasn't a Queen's enemy! <laughs> so, uh, th just think about politics for a moment, then. And, and your speech... But your speech is about... Particularly our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Your speech about our withdrawal from Afghanistan is probably one of the most amazing parliamentary moments of, of the last few years. And it went viral and rightly so. I mean, I've listened to it, watched it, it moved people around the world. It was such an articulate opposition to not just our government's policy, but to America, to, to NATO, to the Allies leaving Afghanistan. I mean, obviously, you have personally experienced serving your country there, helping build and rebuild Afghanistan. How do you feel now? Obviously, it's been a few months. There are other stories in the news, and we'll come on to those because I know you feel very passionately about those. How do you feel about the effect the withdrawals had on that country? Well, it's a disaster. I mean, there's literally no upside at all. You know, there are still um, people who are leaving. I'm still there's a few of us who are still trying to get people out. I mean, frankly, the you know the Taliban are still going door to door and murdering people. It's just not reported because Ukraine's rather dominated the news agenda. Um, you know, it's it's utterly horrific and. Um, the economy has collapsed to such an extent that people are quite literally selling their children. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, there is literally no upside, and all of it for the cost of a few thousand troops who could have held it together for a while. I mean, you know, it is, it's quite a striking indication of what we're serious about and what we're not. Ben Wallace seemed very moved. Secretary of State for Defence. I got the impression that he disagreed with it. I've never asked him whether he agreed or disagreed with it, but I kind of got the same impression that he tried to find an alternative um, with different armed forces. But the reality is, I mean, you know, this is you know, this is simply true. You know, we are very, very dependent on the United States. This is the decision we've taken over the last well, 30, 40 years, and it has only become more so as our army has shrunk, our navy has shrunk, and our air force has shrunk. Was there a way we could have stayed without the United States? Probably not. Without the Americans, no. I mean, you know, the difference isn't, you know, could we have supplied the troops? Yeah, we could have supplied the troops. That's not too, diff not too difficult. But the logistical support in terms of, you know, maintaining those helicopters, for example, that the Afghans were using, well, they were American contractors who needed to be fed and, you know, guarded and all the rest of it. You know, you end up with this extraordinary tale. I mean, you know, in the, in the Second War, the... Um, the ratio of people in the front line to people supporting them was two in the front line to one in support. By 
Afghanistan, it was one in the front line to ten in support. And that tail is just really, really expensive and really hard to manage, and you need to be enormous to do it. And if you want to see what goes wrong, if you don't get it right, just look at Russia. I feel bad asking about this because you're clearly emotional and moved by it. It's obviously a country that you feel very strongly about, having been there and known people and friendships and probably wondering about some of the people that you worked with and knew and were friendly with and, and what their lives are like now. Um, looking into the future, as someone who cares about geopolitics and really understands it in a way that very few people do, what do you think the, the medium to long-term effect of that withdrawal is going to be for our security? Uh, I mean, Ukraine is part of the result of it. You know, we advertised about as clearly as you possibly can that we're not really serious about it. We don't have the desire to endure, and if you push us a bit, then we might flake. Um, and because of that, um, people like Putin drew a lesson in Ukraine. Now, actually, he drew the wrong lesson. It turned out that Europe's not the same as Afghanistan, but it's certainly one of the factors that fed into him making the decision to cross the line in February. Uh, and I strongly suspect it's one of, the one of the factors that's being played out now in Beijing by Chairman Xi and wondering what he's going to do next. And is, it just, is this just the, the reaction to the post-Iraq landscape where the West reassesses because of political pressure at home uh, deployments abroad? Or is there something else? Is the West becoming, in general, too complacent and, and just a general lack of appetite about solving problems uh, and uh, effectively not seeing these things in our self-interest. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I do wonder whether part of it isn't sort of the absence of war. I mean, I, you know, I remember, I remember when we took Baghdad in 03, I was with one of the first troops in, and we set up a command position in a house. Uh, I mean, it was a very nice house, except for the fact that it had no roof because we'd bombed the shit out of it. But, I mean, <laughs> but other than that, it was a very nice house. And, the, um, and as we were wandering around, sort of setting up positions and all the rest of it, I opened one of the cupboards, and there was this, <laughs> you know, clearly a kid's room, and there was this sort of pair of ballet shoes and a French book, Arabic into French. And, and I remember thinking, wow, a few months, a few years ago, somebody thought that the best use of their time and, and money was teaching their daughter French and ballet. Now, you know, I've no idea where that little girl or that family are now. They could be refugees, they could be, you know, moved to their very rich uncle's house in Washington, for all I know, or they could be in a, some refugee camp somewhere, or dead. But you sort of see that the reality of what goes wrong if your society fails is that you have foreign armies going through your daughter's cupboards. I mean, that's pretty bleak, right? And you've you know, I don't think we've always taken this quite as seriously in recent years, that it's not, you know, it's, you don't have large armies because you want to invade people. You have large armies because the cost of defeat is so staggeringly large that it is worth paying a very, very high price to avoid it. It does seem strange that of all the parties, the Conservative Party, the party of defence, you know, that has always hugged the flag so close, that has weaponised its position over the Labour Party in that way. You can't help feeling that actually if Keir Starmer had been in charge, he might have put up a stronger resistance to pulling out of Afghanistan. <laughs> I mean, look, it's, um, you know, we now have the smallest army since before Napoleon. You know, this is a, this is a remarkable this series of decisions. By the way, at the time, the British population was about 10, 12 million. You know, it's, it's, it's quite striking 
that we are we treat ourselves as though life this normal life you know is what happens if you don't touch it actually this normal life is what happens when you work hard to keep it i mean it's very much like me and fizz you know <laughs> you know i may think i'm exceptionally good looking but when i stop running trust me i become a fat knacker <laughs> you know it's when you said fizz, I thought you meant champagne. No, no. <laughs> you mean physical exercise? I mean physical exercise, Is yeah. that another military? It's, I thought it was quite common. Was All right. Oh, it's right. a bit of fizz down at the naffy with the boys in the <laughs> platoon. <laughs> Something like that. You've been watching too many movies. <laughs> or not enough. Or not enough, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, it's just so difficult, isn't it? Because I'm 39 years old, and British really? foreign policy... Do you think I look good? <laughs> You look younger than me, and you're ten years older. I had an easier paper round. <laughs> well, it involved Baghdad. I'm not sure that's... <laughs> I started in Beirut. <laughs> but it was... It, I, you know, my, my whole life, in terms of being politically aware, has been dominated, really, by foreign policy decisions and how important these things are. Now, you know, have to get them right and the consequences of getting them wrong. But very much about how you serve Britain's self-interest and the interests of your allies abroad. It just feels really odd that politicians older than me, people like Boris Johnson, people like Joe Biden, I mean, America of all the... You just think this is incredible. Post-9-11 is taking this decision so soon. So I don't know whether it's... It's really easy, I think, sometimes to look at the Syria vote as this sliding doors moment, and it's been talked about a lot regarding Ukraine. Had that gone differently... So let's say Ed Miliband supports David Cameron. Like he said he would. Like he said he would. And, I mean, some of the quotes around that, I don't know if you remember any of them. I was still in the army at the time. So the, the story goes over the Syria vote that they have a phone call and Ed Miliband says to David Cameron, you know what he said, look, I'll support you. <laughs> look, it's the right thing to do. <laughs> you know, whatever it was he said. Right? <laughs> then the following day he goes, actually, we can beat the Tories on the floor of the House of Commons. So, votes it down. We don't go in. Obama says, well, if you're not going in, I'm not going in. And then, you know, look at all the things that have happened since. And this is when Assad had used chemical weapons against children. Um, and Russia, of course. Russia yes. Russia had been instrumental in it. And uh, I remember reading, I think, in the Sunday Times, Nick Soames says, <laughs> I think of Ed Miliband, he's a fucking prick <laughs> and a copper-bottomed cunt. <laughs> I don't know if that was the view on your wing of the party at the time. You can, you can sort of certainly understand the, uh, the emotion. I mean, you know, Nick has never really lost words. Or hashtags, actually. <laughs> but it's... Look, I mean, it, you know, there's a whole series of sliding doors. And do you remember um, my friend Joe Cox and I wrote a, wrote a paper about that at the time, which, um, sadly, she didn't get to complete. But, the, um, but we were talking about the, the cost of intervention and the cost of doing nothing. And it's, it's really easy... Uh, you know, to say, oh, well, you know, intervention is really difficult, it's really expensive, and bloody right it is. It's really, really hard. But not doing anything is also really expensive. I mean, you know, I don't know what you want to put down um, to the various things that have happened in the last five, six years, but five million migrant Syrians, you know, the destabilisation of uh, bits of Turkey and Eastern Europe, um, you know, the energy prices going haywire. You know, I mean, there's a whole series of things that you can, you can look at since 2013. And see the and see the implications and it and the problem is I mean you know I mean a lot of people think I'm interested in foreign affairs because I'm interested in you know what goes on abroad I'm fundamentally interested in what goes on here and you look at all the cost that this throws onto families across our country I mean you know I don't know about you but I tell you I noticed the difference in the gas bill from the 
I was going to say foreign policy fuck up, but are you allowed to swear on your podcast? Oh, know, yes. <laughs> it's all off the record anyway. There mate. you go, exactly. <laughs> but you know what I mean? The, the, the foreign policy mistakes, aren't, they don't just stay in Kiev or Kabul or whatever. You know, we end up paying a hell of a lot more ourselves and, and you end up, you know, seeing um, you know, family breakdowns and, 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 and the consequences of, of real pressure in real lives here in the UK. I mean, it, it listen to you talk about foreign policy, the leadership of the country, as many Labour MPs had to reassess under Jeremy Corbyn, have you ever had to reassess whether you're in the right party? Uh, no, I know I'm in the right party. I'm just not sure everybody in it's in the right party too. <laughs> <laughs> and what party should they be in? I'll leave that for them to decide. And w which individuals would be better off in it? <laughs> Some of those yachts have much better parties. <laughs> <laughs> so just thinking of the Prime Minister then, obviously you're a, you're a chain of command guy, you're a military man, you respect the people at the top of the uh, chain. You have worked in the army. <laughs> 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 you, may, you may not find it works quite the way you intend. Okay. But you follow orders without question. Yeah, again, you see. You know. Okay. You're a loyal man. Yes. You eat sweets. <laughs> Mostly I eat sweets. I mean, funnily enough, I mean, you say that, but actually there's very few things more democratic in a, in a genuine sense, as in you discuss it and you make sure you know what you're doing, than, than um, well-run regiments, well-run units. Because if you're going to ask somebody to go and do something incredibly stupid and get themselves killed, they, you know, they might like to know <laughs> whether or not it's a good idea, right? I mean, you know, yeah. they might just, you know, and, and if, you're, you know, if you're lining up, you the guy on the right might see something different from the guy on the left. So, you know, having a conversation is kind of important. And is the Tory party a well-run regiment? Um, no political party is ever particularly well-run. I mean, you've got to remember that <laughs> political parties aren't really groupings of people. They're sort of franchises. They're local. You end up with a local Tory franchise, a local Labour franchise in your area. And, you know, depending on how you want to do it, you you run it in different ways. Um, I mean, it's certainly, you're not going to tell me that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer ran the same local franchise literally next door to each other, are you? No, so what, what's the Tom Tugan hat Tory franchise like? We go through the door, and what greets us at the checkout? Man, very fat bloke with Haribo. Place <laughs> 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 is just full of sweets. Exactly. <laughs> the Willy Wonka, no, it's the, look, the, um, I mean, the, you know, it's the same... You know, it's the same as, as, as everything in, the, in this. It's trying, to get, it's trying to get the most number of people to, to have a you know, prosperous and happy life and be able to you know, go to their kids' parties and nick Haribo's off them. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that's literally the point in life. But your, sort of, your brand of conservatism, which is strong defence, a real value placed on foreign policy for our strategic aims, and uh, less divisive narrative at home doesn't feel like it's in vogue in the Tory party at the moment. Oh, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I'm not sure that's right. I think it is in vogue. Um, it's just we, um, we're rather fans of it being done in Kiev rather than <laughs> elsewhere. I mean, you know, Zelensky is, a, is an enormously inspirational figure to a lot of people because he's doing exactly that. He's, you know, he's, he's uniting a country, he's bringing a country together, he's demonstrating the integrity of command and, you know, sharing the risk with his guys. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's an extraordinary example of what leadership can be like. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that there is, um, I think it is in vogue. It's just, 
you've got to pick the right country. <laughs> so would, would Boris Johnson, think in like military terms, would he, would he be a good officer? <laughs> he'd, he'd be very good in the mess. <laughs> <laughs> and what leadership skills do you think he possesses? I mean, whatever you think of him, there's one thing you can't question is he's, he's extraordinarily good at communicating a message. Now, I mean, you know, he really is a political alchemist. Um, much to the astonishment, I think, of many people, certainly here, clearly. <laughs> but, he, uh, but, but he really is, I mean, you know, this is a guy who won London twice and, and, and after however many terms ends up with an AC majority. I mean, you know, you can't not these things. They're real, right? Now, you may, you may like or not like, but, but they are real. And, and, and I think you, you, know, you need to recognise them. I mean, it's obviously difficult for you because you would like the Conservative Party to represent a slightly different sort of Toryism to perhaps one that the Prime Minister is currently um, giving us. So within the party, do people say to you, Tom, you've got to stop speaking out, you know? No, they don't. I mean, actually, I mean, this is one of the things, I, frankly, I quite like about the Tory party. There's no, I mean, the Labour Party is a bit of a church, right? I mean, you, you've, you've got sort of an idea that there are values that you all stick to and they're all a bunch of socialists together, right? <laughs> we don't. <laughs> We're just sort of, hey, I'm the local guy from here, you know, and that's it. You know, it's not, and so that there's always been lots of, I mean, basically the fundamental purpose of the Conservative Party is to make sure socialists don't win. And, you know, once you've admitted that, a lot of other things are much easier. <laughs> yes, but are there things worse than socialists? <laughs> I'll come back to you. <laughs> but I, I'm not saying that one... I'm not, obviously not claiming that the current person is a fascist, but, you know, you could stop socialists winning, but you could, there could be other ideologies that are just as undesirable. Of course, of course there are. Look, I mean, you know, and, and you know, whatever you think of him, Keir Starmer's a perfectly decent guy. I mean, he's not a, he's not a leader, and, you know, but he's an absolute, you know, he's nice, nice to go and have a cup of tea with. And do you often have a cup of tea with him? Not anymore. I did, I did when we were first elected. We were elected on the same day in 2015, so we used to, we used to hang out a bit way oh yeah. back when, yeah. And does he like sweets? <laughs> Can't you tell? <laughs> Well, he likes a pint, though, doesn't he? He's, he's more normal. I don't normal. know, I never got there. No? No, he just cups tea. And so presumably you stopped talking because you decided not to defect. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are many reasons not to defect. But no, the... Um, look, I'm... You, look, you, you know this. You, I mean, you're, you have written about this for so long. But you know that you, you know, being part of a political party is a little bit tribal, right? I mean, oh, it just yeah. is. And um, what's that football team you support, Nottingham Forest. Yeah. You know, you, you know, you find yourself in these sort of tribes that you, that you, you know, you affiliate with for a whole series of reasons. And I, I you know, I'm a conservative. I really am conservative. I mean, I, I happen to, you know, it's, it's pretty fundamental. I mean, I, I think that, I think that the values are me and I, you know what I mean? I just, I associate it with it. So, so it's never been a question for me. And, and, and why I've stopped is because Keir has been really busy trying to sort out Brexit for Jeremy Corbyn and now leading the Labour Party, which I wish him every luck, but frankly, herding cats. <laughs> so, let's say there is a Tory leadership contest. You've said that you would stand in it. Well, I've said, I've said that if there, was a, if there was a reasonable possibility of doing it, then yeah, of course I would. I mean, I love this. Everybody sort of goes, oh no, you, know, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't say that you're going... Well, what do you think I am? <laughs> do, you, do, you think I, do you think I ran for election in order to lose? I mean, you know, come on. <laughs> of course not. You, you know, everybody who stands for public office runs in order to win. Now, that doesn't mean you want to do every job 
on the, on the ticket, if you like. But why shouldn't you be ambitious? Why shouldn't you be ambitious for your country or your community? Why shouldn't you be ambitious for yourself and your family? I mean, it, frankly, those are pretty conservative values. Oh, they are, but given the nature of modern politics, some people say, oh, I might pretend that I don't want it. So you want to start off your leadership run with a lie? Well, it works for some other people, Tom. (laughs) I'll leave it there. Very good communicators. So, um, Oh, no, he was honest about it. (laughs) Well, he was, if the ball comes free at the back of the scrum or whatever the phrase was. I think that's what he said, yeah. Um, So let's say the leadership contest happens, it's up and running. Would you take money from Russian donors? Or mail? <laughs> no, I mean, the, there's a real balance, there's a real uh, difficult balance here because there are people who left Russia years ago have a literally no connections to um, Putin or his you know, criminal enterprise. And they've approached you? Uh, some have. And these are nice guys? Of course. <laughs> and what do they say? They're like, if you go, we'll give you a couple of mil. Uh, no, I mean, yeah, British politics, a couple of mil, it's more like £2.50. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, it's... Um, it, people offer, people offer support, and, yeah. you know, you just need to decide where you're willing to go. And where are you willing to go? Darling, I never thought you'd <laughs> But, it's, you know, the whole issue of party funding and donations, until you have state funding, and I'm guessing as a Tory you wouldn't agree with state funding? I Look, I... I it's a really difficult one because, you know, if you want democracy, you need associations that bring people together, right? And we call them political parties. Not all of them are podcasts. And, the, um, and it's, difficult. it's difficult to find ways in which you do it, right? You can either do it by capping donations at 50 or 100 pounds, but then you end up with very, very local political parties, and it's very difficult to get national movements going. It's not impossible, but it is very hard. And you, you risk other things. I mean, you know, the reality of politics, as you know, is it's decisions. It's like, w- which, is the, which is the greater evil, which is the lesser evil? And if you think the breakup of your country is a greater risk, then you might want to have national movements. If you think that uh, increased local representation... You know, there's a whole series of ways of looking at it. And, I mean, frankly, it's something that we long overdue talking about. So, the campaign's up and running... You've taken money from good Russian people. Very good. Who want absolutely nothing in return. What if they just say, a quick game of tennis? Well, they'd be very welcome to play with you. <laughs> so I'm running your campaign. We're taking hand over fist from the Russians. <laughs> we are living high on the hog. That yacht packed full of sweets. And then it comes to the launch event. Now, I know up in Aberdeen you said you want stro- you know, you would, strong values, I think was the phrase you used about... Wasn't it? Something like that? I can't remember, mate. I was only the one saying it. Three days ago. I know. It was a long time ago. <laughs> what, are, what would Tom Tugendhat's Tory government look like? What are the sort of priorities you would have? The priorities are, I mean, priorities are pretty fundamental, actually. I mean, and I think they're ones that you know, really matter to us now, which is you know, we, need to, we need to be supporting people in their homes to make sure that they're, ta- they're able to take the opportunities that life is offering. And, and, and one of the things that really strikes me at the moment is to do with childcare. One of them is to do with, you know, to do with making sure that people bounce back from, from COVID. And, and the third one is to do with education. You know, and all three of those have been, you know, they're, they're very difficult because they bump into each other, if you like. They, you know, you, you only have a certain amount of money unless you're willing to 
spend like a sailor on shore leave, and uh, and and you find yourself, you know, having to prioritise. But I think at the moment, given the uh, given the number of people we need to help get back into work, I think one of the first things we need to look at is childcare. And not including Churchill, which Tory leader from the past would you say you were closest to ideologically or in style? In style. Yeah. Dude, I have no idea. <laughs> Thatcher? I, I haven't got the hair for it. But I mean, <laughs> um, no, I mean... Okay, including Churchill. Well, I'm not very similar to him. I mean, he, he was a significantly better writer than me, and he told better stories. Um, the, um, I don't know. I don't really think about the past too much, actually. I mean, that's a very good answer, but obviously you're someone who studies the past... Yeah, but I mean, you know, I'm nothing like any of them because none of them had the internet and... (laughs) What have you done on the internet? Mate. (laughs) (laughs) Can I just say there was literally no filter in this place? (laughs) No, but you know what I mean? Churchill would have had your browsing history. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We'd have loved him for it. We would, of course. But no, you know what I mean? I mean, it's just just very difficult. I, I don't see the comparisons work. You know, I'm. Uh, you know, my. Lo- Maybe it's a Labour thing. People go, "Are oh, you a Blairite? Are oh, you a Corbynite?" You know, it's just a way of understanding where you're placing yourself on the political. Spectrum. I think everybody in Westminster looks at themselves in the mirror and sees Churchill staring back. I mean, that's just, you know, some of them literally put their names on it. But the, um, <laughs> but the, but I think other than that, I mean, I. I mean, they're just, they're interesting people, and many of them have taken interesting decisions which you may or may not agree with, but, but I don't see myself in their image, if you see me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And it's not just the internet, is it? There's a whole raft of political issues now that politicians even five years ago weren't having to deal with. Right. I mean, but you, you look at, you know, you look at, uh, you look at people like, I mean, pretty recent politicians like Blair and, and, and Major. Yes, yeah, Blair, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. He was good, wasn't he? Was he? Was oh. he? Well, some people say, you know. <laughs> you, you're doing a bit of an impression of him there. Does he do that? Well, you know, it's that sort of... <laughs> I feel deeply uncomfortable. Oh, you need the... Now that's the start, Tom, is... I think you're right, by the way. I think uh, sort of historical comparisons aren't always the most relevant, frankly. But look, the point about leadership is uh, not just about Haribo, by the way, although, that, of course, that's critical. Yes. 
that sort of thing. That's very good. Oh, cheers. Do the have, you, um, have you thought about making a living? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People might look at you and say, oh, they got the Tony Blair thing, you know, he's, he's a charming middle-class chap, he's good-looking, he's young for his age, you know, um, those sort of things. <laughs> <laughs> but they'd be, they'd, they'd, you can see how the comparison, you've got a, a lovely winning smile. You know, people might make that comparison, perhaps. Maybe you would be seen as a, a, as a Blair rather than a, any previous Tory leader. Would, th- would that be a mantle you'd be proud of? I, d- I just don't think it applies. It's sort of, you know, what Tony Blair was trying to do at a particular time... You know, where the world was a different place and, you know, he's trying to fix different problems and it just, you find yourself looking at, you, you can't look at the world through their eyes. I mean, you just can't. Um, although one thing, I, you know, I'm always rather impressed in a funny way with Blair is that he continues to throw ideas into the mix. You know, his, which is, you know, more than many retired politicians do. So, if you're going to stand for the leadership, obviously, uh, you need the numbers. Have many Tories come forward and said, Tom... Mate, you, you're organising the campaign, you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, has anyone in, in the tea rooms or in the corridors said, or even on WhatsApp? As you know, it is the most honest electorate in the country, <laughs> and I take every pledge with the seriousness that it deserves. <laughs> <laughs> Have any ministerial... If Boris was saying it only the other day. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's, it, there isn't a competition, so there's literally no point in the conversation. Um, I mean, these things... These things, I, th- I mean, my experience with them last time is they go rather quickly. So they don't start, and then they start with a bang, and then, you know. And we'll see. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's funny. It's just sort of, I do think that if you, if you can make a difference, if you, if you think you have an ability to serve, I think you, you have a responsibility to offer. And, yes. you know, offering isn't the same as being chosen, and as, you know, many of us who've stood for election in other parts know, but you offer, and if people don't choose, that's fine. Go and do something else. And have you thought about that as a, a strap line? Or have you maybe like experimented with fonts at home? You have thought a lot more about this than I have. Well, but like, I can sort of see Tom Tugan. Everyone has a font these days. Do they? Yeah, you need a font for a leadership bit. You've got to think about the When you were a kid, you. did you like hang out in the stationery cupboard or something? <laughs> <laughs> I did actually like the stationery cupboard. There you go, I knew it. Prick sticks and... Um, Post-it notes and marker pens. There you go. Great fun, the stationery cupboard. But you need a font and then you Were need you to... Were you allowed out of the stationery cupboard? Or was that... <laughs> <laughs> you like Tom Tugan hat. The ability to lead. A chance to serve. <laughs> stuff like that. I, I, you have got a lot way further than me. You have to think about this stuff because yeah. what if... Like you say, things happen fast. What if a, a situation... What if this police investigation means that Boris Johnson has to go? What if he gets fixed penalty notice and that changes things? Do you think he will? Uh, I mean, he did. It seems like he's he's reached the threshold for a fixed penalty notice. So then, why wouldn't he get one? I've no idea. I mean, I'm, I'm just you're the one who reads the news. <laughs> well, I'm not the only one. Everyone's <laughs> 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 not come here tonight to find out what the news is. How did you feel? I'm not here on a false pretense. <laughs> <laughs> How did you feel when you saw the pictures of him in the garden drinking? I mean, I can't honestly say I was surprised. <laughs> Do you think he's been doing that a lot? Uh, I have no idea. I mean, you know, you, you could genuinely say that he is not somebody who ever ran under false pretenses. <laughs> and how does that make you feel as a Conservative MP? Well, I mean, I've always been pretty clear on what I think matters, and uh, as long as he enjoys the support of the party, it's up to him to carry on. 
What about the context of the public and a Prime Minister breaking rules during a lockdown, pre-vaccine, when mingling helped spread a lethal virus? Just as a citizen, how does that make you feel? I just think that if you pass laws, you should probably obey them. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I think definitely. I'll go for definitely. <laughs> so, you're sort of out there on the Tory back, and you chair the Foreign Affairs Select Committee as well, and have done for a number of years now, and that gives you a kind of platform and a, and a credibility in the area, you're deeply immersed in the policy work. Why do you think you haven't been brought into the Cabinet? I, I don't know, mate, you tell me. <laughs> But don't you think they sometimes, and I know it's like, but like Gordon Brown brought Peter Mandelson back. So is it beyond the realms that you would get a, a ministerial post? Or well, I think if Gordon asked, then I might think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but do people ever say, look, just tone it down a bit and, you know, you get a red box? No, people, I mean, no, I mean, they did a little while ago, but they stopped that. When you make like your speech on Afghanistan, really, and if you haven't watched it, you have to watch it. It's incredibly moving. And oddly, I feel weird saying that because it's it's not a form of entertainment, it's just a really important moment. But you do have to watch it. After that, did you get any notes from cabinet ministers? No, I did get a couple of notes from heads of state of foreign governments, which was quite flattering. And w which governments? Um, Former heads of state of the United States, former heads of states of France and Germany. So Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> no, a couple of couple of former presidents wrote to me, and a couple of other heads of states. I have to say, I was really surprised. I mean, it's like, oh, right, I didn't know you could write. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's who would the French one be? Holland. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not no, going to no. go. Sarkozy. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever met him? Yeah. So it was definitely him. Because um, <laughs> he's an interesting chap, isn't he? What was he like when you met him? Uh, yeah, he doesn't write. It wasn't him. Okay. It wasn't him. Uh, he's, he's incredibly intense. I mean, he's just really there. You know what I mean? He's a very present individual. You know, you, you walk into a room, you have literally no doubt at all who the centre of the room is. It's him. And is that a good thing? I mean, if you want to be the head of state, yeah, I guess it is. Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, he's the president. He's the, you know, it's, a, it's, it's remarkable. And he's not, I mean, you know this, he's not a particularly tall man, but he has an extraordinary presence. It's quite, he's quite electrifying. And what, in terms of, like, your own... So hard, isn't it? Because you're obviously charismatic and clever and all these things, but do you think if you're going to run for leadership, you have to sort of dial certain things up or tone certain things down? I think, I mean, I mean, I think, I think doing these sort of things, you've got to do it as you think is the right way to do it. And if people want to hire you, fine. And if they don't, they'll hire somebody they like more. And that's, you know, but you don't, you know, you don't want to start off doing something in a way that you then can't keep up. I mean, it's, it's like when you go out for a run with your mates and you all decide to sprint at the beginning and it takes about 15 seconds before one of you's had a heart attack and the other two have collapsed. You know, it's... You, you, as you long as you win. Mate. <laughs> but you know what I mean? You just... You, you want to do it in a way that you can keep doing it because otherwise you're going to be utterly miserable and people are going to start hating you very quickly. And how do you feel about politics? I mean, it's obviously it's different 
even chairing the select committee, but leadership in an era of social media and all the problems we're going to have with deep fakes and things like that, conversation about woke and language and yeah, old mate, tweets. It's not me here anyway. <laughs> old language and things. I mean, do you feel comfortable about the arena in which politics takes place now? It's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, politics is always using the latest technology. I mean, that's, you know, the, the sort of the videos that um, Reagan used, the, you know, the, the radio broadcast that, who was it? It was uh, Roosevelt used. You yes. know, I mean, politicians are always using the latest medium uh, to try and communicate better and quicker and, you know, more authentically, or whatever it happens to be. You know, they're, they're trying to be present. And it's, I mean, this is just the latest iteration. And by the way, in five, ten years' time, there'll be another thing. I have no idea what it'll be, but there'll be another thing, and you'll have to get good at that, right? And so, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think it's particularly different if you see me. You're just, it's just the latest version in a long line. But what about the, the sort of element of personal interest as you, as an individual and the intrusion and things like that? I mean, we've, we've seen leadership candidates in various parties. Actually, once they cross that white line, so to speak, uh, I think Gove might have even snorted it. Um, they, <laughs> they find it... They find it difficult. They go, holy shit, this is very different to being a cabinet minister, being a cabinet minister trying to become the leader of a party. It is another level. I, th I think that's right. And, and, you know, when Keir had to, you know, reveal the fact that he bought a field for his parents' donkeys, I think that, you know, you realise that there's a, there's a level of intrusion there that really <laughs> might leave you exposed. Um, but, you know, but it's also, if it is who you are, then there's not much there. I mean, you know... Of all the people who, who um, have not suffered from that intrusion, the current leader of the Conservative Party as well. I mean, you know, you can see that you can you can have a lifestyle that is uh, not traditional, and <laughs> and 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 enjoy it, right? And uh, you know, I think I think you need to decide what you're what you're happy with, and if you if it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. But you don't feel like you're ever going to, you know, you wouldn't ever stand and go, oh my God, you know, they really got into this Haribo thing. I'm going to have to kind of come clean about. The scale of the addiction. <laughs> I think uh, I think I think that could be the uh, the, uh, the Achilles heel in the uh, in the entire plan. Yeah. But do you worry? I mean, uh, uh, some people say now, why would a young person enter politics? You know, the level of intrusion, the idea that if you ever made a mistake as a young person, then it's held against you in the future. So I th I don't think that's right. I think I think that's because yours and my generation are used. Well, to I'm nine years younger. So you say that. Yeah. I think we can have a vote on this. The I'm a millennial. <coughs> I was, I, I'm, the last, I'm literally a millennial by about six weeks. Are you really? Because I, I turned 18 in the year 2000, but November. So I got in, I'm like the guy who gets into the door in Titanic. I just made it yeah. into like, yeah, I'm a millennial, man. So if you're a bit me, older, you'd say it was uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but you clearly missed that movie. Well, because I'm young. Because you're young. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, look, I, I, I think most... I think most people... Tell me, old-timer, what's it like for you? <laughs> <laughs> I think most people in their 20s now, it doesn't matter anymore. You know, everybody's got those photos of you know, them getting pissed and having a good time on, on Facebook. I mean, it just doesn't matter. I mean, for you and me, it matters because, it, you know, we basically weren't allowed out. And, you know, <laughs> so it was pretty unusual. But the, or rather, we never posted anything online. So, you know, you notice it as a shock, but I think most people just don't care anymore. That's a really good point. For old men like you... <laughs> <laughs> All the photos are just like Kodak. They're just in lofts yeah. gathering. If they even exist, if they even exist, your crimes were never documented and plastered all over the internet. 
Well, in, in, for the important part of my life, it was covered by the Official Secrets Act, so it's very useful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the thing, that military life. That, I mean, I've read Dan Jarvis's book. I don't know if anyone's read it. Some of the stuff he talks about, I mean, it's the sort of stuff you'd imagine. It's naked fighting in sports halls. Yeah, it's more his thing. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen him naked? Uh, yes, actually, I have. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what? It was a uh, very large <laughs> shower cubicle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I imagine he's a oppressive naked guy, you know. I do not, I don't remember. I'm really sorry to disappoint. But we, uh, no, he had, a, he, he had a base uh, in the middle of the desert that had these <laughs> massive shower cubicles <laughs> that were just the best thing ever because after you've been in the desert for about six weeks and you absolutely honk, it was just really nice. So there you go. And do you guys still chat? Yeah. Regularly? Uh, I mean, not every day, but yeah, I mean, every now and again, yeah. And it must be very strange to have had that relationship with each other where you're effectively checking up on him. And then you're in Parliament. Well, and then we fought together. I mean, you know, I, I yeah. wasn't, wasn't like constantly checking up on him. It wasn't like, <laughs> wasn't, wasn't Ofsted or anything. It was <laughs> you know, people, f- <laughs> people have friendships forged in far less severe circumstances that they treasure for the rest of their lives. I mean, you two went through something very, well, unique. I mean, that m- not many people in this room will ever can I even mean, imagine what... True, but I mean, don't forget, like. we, we lived in a world where it wasn't that unique. Yeah. Right, so, I mean, most of our friends have been through exactly the same thing. But they haven't ended up on opposite sides of the House of Commons. No, that's true. Um, they had more sense. But the... Um, <laughs> the um, but you... You know, but you stay in touch with them too in different ways, and, and they do other things. So. What's more treacherous, serving in Afghanistan or serving on the back bench of the Tory? Well, you know where your enemy is in Afghanistan. <laughs> 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 do you get? I mean, I, I get that maybe certain elements of the leadership might not be um, always writing you the nicest letters, but do you get any hostility from. No, I don't really. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, Politics isn't nearly as... I mean, in, in a funny way, of course, it's personal. But, but in a funny way, it's not at all. I mean, you know, I've given four foreign secretaries an incredibly hard time because that's literally what I'm paid to do, is, you know, as chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. I mean, some of them take it personally, some of them don't. That's their problem, not mine. I mean, you know, if I don't like a bill, if I want to vote against something, I'll do it. And if I don't, I won't. I mean, you know, it's not, it's, it's not to do with the quality of the minister or whether I get on with them or... You know what I mean? It's not... That doesn't matter terribly. And who were the good foreign secretaries that you've cross-examined? Jeremy Hunt was very good. Okay. So we're saying not Rob. <laughs> well, <laughs> Dom started off okay, and then he had a really, really bad patch at the end. Like a really bad patch. <laughs> and uh, has that patch finished? Well, he's not foreign secretary anymore. <laughs> so yeah. How did you find... I mean, it must be so difficult. And I know that this happens, happens throughout history... Select committee chairs cross-examining uh, a minister from their own party, but they're perfectly capable of doing it. But obviously, it's a unique sort of tension. It's not the same as cross-examining a, a Labour politician. No, but you know, there's no point in there's no point in having a job and not doing it, right? I mean, best piece of advice I got from a general when I took over working for the head of the armed forces was, "Do your job." Um, Sounds obvious, but of course what he meant was, you know, don't do your boss's job, don't do your junior's job, do the job you've actually got to do. And he's absolutely right, and it doesn't matter wh- whether it's, you know, chairing a foreign affairs committee or 
you know, working in anything else. If you can do your job, at least you're doing something that contributes, you hope, to the better governance of the UK. But do any of them ever say, come on, mate, we're not on the same side. Obviously, they don't. No, they don't. I mean, you know, I think, you, you know, some of them will invite you in for a chat a few weeks before to try and work out what you're going to ask about. I mean, but to be honest, it's not usually that secret. I mean, it's perfectly obvious what you're going to ask about. <laughs> it's whatever's in the media, you know, whatever's, you know, whatever the major issues of the day are. Um, so it's not, it's not terribly difficult, if you see me, to guess where we're going to go. It, you know, you've got 11 members of parliament who are reading the same newspapers and watching the same TV as you are. You know, they're probably going to ask the same questions. One of the big news stories this week has been the uh, return of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe to the yeah. UK. And it turns out all we needed to do was pay £400 million and she could have come home the following day. I mean, it seems odd, you know, that, and I get the reason we're paying it now is because <laughs> uh, if you lift sanctions on Iran, then we can get some of their oil. Um, but it's incredible that actually so little of the narrative of the last six years had been about that debt. To a lot of people, that is new news. Why didn't the UK government just pay up in the first place? Well, there are several reasons. One of the reasons is the Americans did pay up. They paid about, I can't remember, was 600 million, I think it was, they paid. Because the debt, I mean, for those of you who don't know, the debt was because we took money to sell tanks to the Shah of Iran, but then there was the coup and we, you know, there was the arms embargo, and so we didn't deliver the tanks. And then there was sanctions, so we weren't allowed to give the money back either. Um, but actually, nobody's really disputed that the money is owed now for, I think it's about 15 years. The Americans ended up giving the money back $600 million under President Obama, and they flew in a transport aircraft with $600 million in cash, which just, by the way, is about, you know, it's about, it's about the length of this uh, theatre up to about two and a half metres high. Funny you mention that. Bring out the tank! <laughs> <laughs> what a finale that would be. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell. Maybe the Christmas special. They, they paid, and, the, and you know, six months later, the Iranians took six more US dual nationals, and they spent the $600 million on killing Sunni Muslims in uh, Syria. Okay, so my analysis was pretty basic. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, you, these are choices, right? Um, and the, you know, it, it's been very difficult because we've had a lot of outreach um, trying to get the Iranian government to look at this as uh, what it is, which is a humanitarian crisis of a, uh, uh, a woman who's been separated from her family and from her child for nearly six years. And they were looking at it as kidnap for ransom. And the problem, the problem with kidnap for ransom is if you pay the ransom, guess what happens? They're going to kidnap somebody else. I mean, that's a, a frightening conclusion, really. I mean, the, the one grain of hope is that the Iranians have promised that that £400 million will only go on humanitarian. I'm courses. sure they're absolutely right. I'm sure that they will not use that money for anything else. But the money that they would have spent on humanitarian aid <laughs> can now go on guns. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm sure you speak to the Foreign Secretary from time when you're not just cross-examining there. What would your advice have been over this? To pay it or not pay it? You got to the point where there was really no way out, um, and you know you've also got to, you you can look at a longer stage, but you've also got to look at the personal tragedy, and trying to get doing anything to get Nazanin and Nusha out just frankly had to be the right thing to do. Um, although you know Morad didn't get out, so you know, because the Iranian government is a hostage-taking dictatorship, you know, and that's that's who you're dealing with. 
And how do you rate Liz Truss as a foreign secretary? It's too early to tell. I mean, she's you know this is a this is a tremendous success, um, and she's you know she's had some she's had some other you know <laughs> successes in terms of um, reaching out to Russia. So let's see. I mean, it's it, it's just too early to know. But it must be there must be part of it. Obviously, if you want to stand for the leadership, you're looking at the prime minister. Thinking I can do a better job than the current incumbent. You must have the same with foreign secretaries. You must think I'm better than. Dominic Raab or Liz Truss or well, I, I mean, I, I don't really. I just get on with what I'm doing, and and what's nice about having the committee rather than being a minister is you can just get on with it and ignore the prime minister and ignore <laughs> the government, and just get on with doing what you want. And 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 there's an awful lot that you you can do, you know, whether it's working with, um, you know, we've done a lot of work recently with the foreign affairs committees in Eastern Europe, in getting various different arrangements in place. You know, we effectively got. Um, the Belarusian flights grounded a number of, when was it, 18 months ago? No, less than that, nine months ago, when they forced that Ryanair plane out of the sky. You know, various different things that we got done there. So, you know, there's, there are various different ways in which you can, you can actually have quite a lot of effect from, from this position. And would you be happy, let's say you stand for the leadership and you don't get it, so just carry on being an MP, chair of yeah. select committee, or would you go, actually, if I'm not going to be prime minister... No, I think I'm going to go run an NGO or set up a think tank. No, I think I mean I th- I rather in- you know I I mean you know I enjoy it. I, I think you know one of the best bits of, about this is it's a bit like having a scene again. Your your you know your constituency is 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 you basically you you know you're fundamentally responsible to to those people and you have a huge amount of work that you can do there and you know Tombridge and Morling is a remarkably beautiful part of the country and um, I'm very, very lucky and I'm lucky enough to represent some incredibly decent people. Many of them don't vote for me, but (laughs) enough of them do. Um, But, you know, even those who don't are extremely polite and very nice and very friendly and, you know, it's a a really nice area. You say that, but in 2019, you did get some anti-Semitic abuse. Yeah, a bit. How bad was it? Oh, not too bad. Not to, I mean, you know, it was, I, I was mostly just surprised. I mean, I've gone... How old am I? I've gone... Uh, <laughs> well, you look... To be fair, you look <laughs> younger than me. <laughs> to be fair. Um, the, so you're 48. So I've gone, you know, pretty much 40 years and never had any at all. I certainly never had any in, in the army or any... You know, you know, weird name, yeah, but not, you know. And so I was just... It was one of those... What? You know, I got a knock on the door. Were you voting for me? No, no, too many Jews in Parliament already. And it was like... I don't know Corbyn lives in your constituency. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I joke, but that's a horrible thing to have said to you. I, I have to say, I was just so surprised. I mean, it was like, wow, strong. Yeah. Put him down as a maybe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, to face, to because you often think people say, oh, it's keyboard warriors, people would never say this stuff to your face, but then... <laughs> it, was, it was pretty clear. It, was, it didn't leave me in any doubt. Oh, my word. Well... Uh, on that note of facing the public, take some questions from the audience. If we could just have the house lights up a little bit. Uh, and if I can ask oh my for God, there are people here. a clear <laughs> hand in the air, always helps. And uh, if I can ask for succinct questions and succinct answers, then we can get round a few. Yes, gentlemen down here. Um, what do we need to do to support the Uyghur Muslims in China? I know it's something you're yeah. passionate about. Um, what do we need to do to support the Uyghur Muslims in China? Call out the abuse. I mean... Be absolutely clear as to what you're buying. I mean, there are sadly uh, a lot of products that we are 
still selling over here that are made by slave labor. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary, isn't it, that 140, 150 years ago, Manchester and Liverpool put themselves into penury because they refused to deal with slave cotton. And here we are quite happily buying slave-made solar panels because, hey, it makes us feel good. And what about, I mean, that was so succinct, I was slightly surprised. Um, <laughs> what about f the government and what we should be doing to pressurise China? So I think, funnily enough, the government is doing quite a lot. I mean, I'd like to see, uh, um, including the trade bill, a genocide amendment. Um, and, you know, genocide is about the destruction of a, country, uh, of a culture, not just a, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to look like Auschwitz, right? I mean, it can, it can be the, the wiping out of a culture, as the UN put it. Um, and I think that the, uh, the British government could do a bit more on that, you know, and quite a lot of people have been pushing. Why do you think there hasn't, it hasn't got the sort of coverage that it deserves? I, I'm not quite sure it hasn't. I mean, it's, it's, I, mean a, I mean, I think most people would know that Xinjiang is a place where Uyghur Muslims are at very best extremely badly treated and at worst disappear in shocking regularity. So, I mean, I, I, don't, think it's, I don't think it's a secret. And the reality is that the Chinese state, sadly, the Chinese Communist Party, has spent the much of the last 10 years getting worse and worse and worse and treating Uyghurs, Tibetans, Mongols, and indeed um, non-Han people within China uh, extremely badly. I mean, really appallingly. And there's a level of violence that has just grown and grown. Is there not a, a deeper problem as well as that? In the uh, coalition era, we looked to China to fund our nuclear yeah. power stations and we are reliant on Chinese funding, and if we raise human rights issues, the, the funding gets lost. I, d I, don't, I, mean, I don't think that's... I certainly think that in, in 2000, and, well, up until 2014-15, people had a different view of China. And to be fair, the Chinese Communist Party, although many of us deeply suspicious of it, um, found, you know, was not so obviously trying to massacre its own people. I mean, Hong Kong was still... Um, rules-based state, um, the Uyghur population of, of Xinjiang was still able to travel, there was a whole series of things. In fact, there was, a, you know, there was various delegations of people, Chinese officials, including Chinese generals, who came over. We used to have these extraordinary meetings in the MOD where you'd have 15 Chinese generals on one side, and on the other side you'd have a Brit <laughs> on his own. <laughs> and the conversation would take five hours because the translator you know, had to go both ways. So you'd, you'd had, you'd actually ex basically just said hello and how's the weather. And five hours later, that was the meeting done. You know, it's not dealing with the trade unions. Very like similar. Turning up mob handed. Yeah, no, they did, but they were always. I mean, they were clearly there to spy on each other. I mean, you know, spy on each other. Oh yeah. What amongst the Chinese? Yeah. They don't trust each other. But are they, so the fifteen people representing different agencies. No, no, they're all they're all you know the PLA. But they're, they're basically making sure that you know Billy doesn't say the wrong thing. Oh my God! I mean, it'd make a great TV drama. <laughs> Are you a, well, no, no, no. I was yeah. going to say you could, you could, you know, Zelensky played a leader and then became a leader. Are you saying I should play a Chinese general? I <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, gonna, I was just saying the Brit, obviously. <laughs> I just think that'd be, a, you know, strong. I'm sure, you know, fine. It'd be provocative. It'd get you. It out would there. be provocative. Yes. Oh my God, <laughs> it's all got a bit GB news. Um, so, uh, yes, it's always fellas. So, oh yes, ladies down the front. What's your feeling that Christy tells policy around the UK 
What's your view of Prince Patel's policy on the Ukrainian refugees? So it's interesting. I Do you think we should take more than five? <laughs> um, I think we've already taken a few thousand. But the, it's interesting. I've been talking to various other governments about it, actually, um, and other governments that have not had any quotas at all, not had visas or whatever, they're really struggling. And one of the problems they've got is that it's very, very difficult to um, settle thousands of people into a community who don't have the same, you know, don't have the language group, don't know how to use the medical services or the school or whatever it is. And so helping people to integrate into a community well is difficult. I mean, it just is hard. And I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to pace it. I really don't. And, and saying that you want people to have um, a room or, a, you know, a, a, a place of residence, you know, so they can invite somebody in, I'm not sure that's such a bad thing. I mean, I was having, I was having this conversation with, I, I won't say which country because it would be fair, but the, the interior minister for, for a major European state. And they were saying, look, they've got a real problem because they haven't paced it. And one of the problems they're finding is that... The Germany. It, I'm not going to say. <laughs> and they, the, one of the problems they've got is that they've got enormous uptake in people trafficking. And so a lot of young women who find themselves in hostels, um, you know, don't stay there very long. And, and at first they thought they were going into families and very rapidly they found out they weren't going into families. But there's a f there is another problem, isn't there? Is it feels like the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary are giving the impression they don't really want that many to come here. It's almost like they're deliberately taking a tough line for whatever reason. I mean, they may be. I mean, you'll have to ask them about that. But the, <laughs> um, I mean, I, th I think having a responsible, balanced approach on this is not a bad thing, right? I mean, it's, you know, I, I was talking to, uh, uh, thank God, not one of my constituents, but somebody got in touch who said that um, he'd just driven a bus over to Poland to go and pick up 50 orphans and he was furious with the Polish authorities for not letting him pick up 50 kids. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> if I drove to your house with a bus and said, hand over 50 kids, would you? I, mean, <laughs> I don't know, you're a convincing guy. Yeah, well, maybe. But, I mean, but you know what I mean? I mean, it's, this is... I'd be I like, mean, hang on, let me get 50 kids. And then you <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 is a, it is a real issue. You know, this yeah. is a... This could easily become one of the nastiest moments of people trafficking that we've seen in generations. But they're not saying that. You know, it, it's when you put it like that. If Tom Singer, that foreign secretary, said like that, I go, okay, that's I understand now why we have this thing. But it feels more that they're trying to look a bit tough. That's up to them. And they're being outmaneuvered by Nicola Sturgeon. I mean, the, the politics of the union, obviously, at the forefront. Yeah, I d you see, I don't, I don't think they are being outmaneuvered by Nicola Sturgeon. I'm afraid I think Nicola Sturgeon is playing a very naked. A political game with this, um, and you know she's offering. First of all, she's offering something that she can't deliver, which is, I think, not a particularly decent thing to do at a time like this. And secondly, you know, how on earth do you think you're going to manage that process better? I mean, and I can tell you this because I've spent, as you can imagine, several months helping, dealing, supporting Afghans who are in hotels and all the rest. Of it. It's really hard. I mean, it's. It's really hard to find that your entire life has been picked up and you're ending up in some hotel on the outskirts of, you know, insert town name here. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, it's really difficult. And particularly if your um, family doesn't speak the language. Quite often the men, the Afghan men will speak English, or at least to some degree. Um, but very often the wife and children won't. Um, and, it's, and it's really, really difficult. And so finding ways to get migration to work better, to, to get refugee status to integrate better, is, I think that I think that's a good thing to do. Um, that does mean managing, but also, 
What you've just demonstrated there is communication is crucial. Because if the public heard a government minister say that, they'd say, OK, I'm slightly more comfortable with our strategic approach. When it's Boris Johnson and Priti Patel saying the sorts of things, and also given the way they often behave, we're then assuming their motives. And I think if most people were to guess what their motives would be, they wouldn't necessarily think they were going to be that pro-immigrant or that humanitarian. And we may well be wrong, but in the vacuum, certainly with the personas these people have created for political means, the public just go, I get the sense you're not, you don't want to help that much. And that, that's difficult. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I find it hard enough to speak for myself without speaking for <laughs> Okay, let's take one last question. And this is going to be the best question of the night. It's going to be insightful and funny. Three hands just went down. So, um, I haven't had anyone from the back, so right at the back, sir, yes. Yes. Um, as someone who, well, I would assume this is a, an advocate of the sort of US-led liberal order since 1945. I Great start. I wonder what you thought of the current state of the US, I guess, with Joe Biden's withdrawal and uh, the Republican Party having a pretty much unabashedly pro-Putin wing. If the US kind of continues to withdraw from the world, what does that mean for the West? Can Europe um, support that Western-led liberal order, or do you think that that's it, the Western-led liberal order, if the US continues to act on the world stage? So, um, I've got a PhD. How do you feel about changing American foreign policy? So <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think my favourite bit of all of this is, is all those twats who have been praising Putin for the last 10 years are finally exposed for exactly what they are. And it's like... Hey! <laughs> it's just... You know you've known it for years and then finally it happens. You're like, yeah. <laughs> you know? So uh, that's a great joy. Um, sorry, that's uh, obviously very sad. And most the, um, look... I have to say, I'm, I'm still very pro-American. I think, I think America is an extraordinary place. And um, it is a remarkably chaotic, uh, ill-governed, um, fractious state. Um, and always has been. And, and in that, it's always generated the most extraordinary ideas and opportunities for people. You know, I mean, just talking about migration. I mean, the United States takes more migrants every year than pretty much every Western European country put together. I mean, it's just massive migrant numbers every year. And, uh, you know, constantly reinventing itself. It's, it's an extraordinary place. And, you know, I think we've just got to hope that we don't end up with Biden versus Trump again at the next election. But, I mean... OK. I'll take that as a coded bid for the presidency. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one way to stop it. Tom Tugendhat with his new Stars and Stripes font. There you go. You, you think a lot about fonts. This is, you can't, I mean, politics... Is this how you avoid writing? Is this because when you're writing on your computer, you constantly, you write the first line, then you change the font. Then you, <laughs> then you go make a cup of tea, you come back, you change the font again. Yeah. And then, and then somebody says, have you been working? You go, yeah, I've been working really hard. Yeah. I've tried four fonts. <laughs> Are any of the jokes funny? And no, mate, but fonts. <laughs> well, I like to use Calibri when I'm just sort of writing during the day. Not too serious. Obviously, Labour Party went through Franklin Gothin book, Neo Sun Standard. You know, <laughs> genuinely, I'm into like political fonts. Did you think Jeremy Corden uses wing nuts? <laughs> <laughs> I think he is a wing nut. I'm not sure <laughs> oh well, um, what a great note to end on. <laughs> um, thank you for coming tonight. This show would be nothing without the audience. So thank you so much for coming. Um, do come back in the future. And um, before we say good night to Tom, please thank everyone here at the Duchess Theatre and Avalon. You made tonight possible.
Thank you for being such a wonderful audience. But ladies and gentlemen, the future President of the United States, <laughs> Tom Tugendhat. <laughs> Well, I loved every second of it. You know, there's something about people who aren't afraid to be a bit emotional. Not on purpose, but because when they're talking about something emotional, you can see that they're getting emotional. I think for so long in politics, and maybe in life, we've kind of conditioned ourselves to not show emotion and to not value that in a politician. Now, obviously, you can't have politicians just breaking down in tears all day, every day. That would be very difficult for them and for us uh, and for the government that they led. Um, but when you see people, I just think he's got huge empathy. And that really comes across as well as um, just a, a good assessment of the issues facing the world and his clear horror at the West's retreat from Afghanistan. And I think Western foreign policy in the last few years is very refreshing because it does feel as if, though, there's a new orthodoxy now. And I'm not entirely sure that that is one that most people have signed up to. I think a lot of the public are slightly surprised at Western foreign policy, given how real these threats clearly are. Um, so that, that the opportunity for a different direction will certainly present itself if, if Tom Tugendhat stands in a future Tory leadership contest, which he said he will. So um, what a phenomenal night. Thank you to everyone who came. The show is nothing without the live audience. There's a fantastic atmosphere in there now. And it's great. It's really bedded in at the Duchess Theatre. It's got its own personality. Um, and I know so many of you come regularly. And thank you so much. Because I think it's, this is like a political buffet. You know, every fortnight, there's a different um, dish from around the political world. And I think it is nice to just try different things, even people you wouldn't necessarily vote for. And that, of course, is the whole spirit of the show. And the audience are always phenomenally respectful. Always ask better questions than I do as well. So it's a good job they turn up. The next guest is James Cleverly, and he is a really funny man. And also very, very sharp um, and a real Tory star and has also served in the armed forces. Uh, so that will be a very, very... That's just always great fun with James Cleverly. That would be a great night. And then future guests include Rosanna Allen Khan, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Gary Neville, David Davis, Lisa Nandy, and more to be announced. Go to mattford.com. And of course, my tour dates, including Saturday, the 23rd of April, at the Bloomsbury Theatre for my uh, stand-up show, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right. Um, well, uh, I shall leave you to it. <laughs> I feel like I'm signing off a phone call. But what a fantastic episode. Uh, and if you haven't seen some of Tom's biggest parliamentary moments, watch them. I'll put a clip actually. It feels, because they're such emotional clips, it feels odd to share them as if they're, you know, goals or something. Um, but they are just really important, I think, to listen and, and see and, and get a sense of how he is in the House of Commons, that command he has. Uh, but, but I'm sure you will have heard or seen some of that already, but I'll, I've popped the link in there so that you can find it. So, um, oh yes, please leave a review. Please tell everyone about it because that's what helps get the podcast at the charts. And I'll see you soon. Ta-ra.